Welcome to The Chris Rawl Show. You can find all of my work at www.chrisrawl.com. You can find me on Twitter or on Facebook at Chris Rawl. If you need to contact me, you can find me on email, chris at ceo.com. On today's episode, the NFL season is over. The Rams are Super Bowl champions, and a lot of teams are left wondering what could have been. The NFL season is no more, and we have one last opportunity to do my very favorite thing, examine the margins, all the small minutia that compromises who wins and who loses a football game, and the grand sweeping conclusions we draw from the outcome, a very tiny sample size. It is my favorite thing to do in all of sports, and trust me, there are many things that I love within this realm. But this is the one that will fascinate me to no end because these games, they always come down to, in my mind, virtually nothing. These tiny little razor-thin margins. And one goes your way and you're a winner. And the narrative about the player or the team is pure celebration and incredible. And if the razor-thin margin goes against you and you're a loser, then the narrative is never cut out for it. Get the hell out of here. Go home. Think about what you've done. You're not cut out to be a winner. And I'm always fascinated by that particular way of thinking and way of interpreting these games, which, again, are tiny sample sizes, and drawing such incredible conclusions from them. So the Rams have won the Super Bowl. They are champions. They beat the Bengals 23-20. to And the place that I want to start is not with this game in particular. It's kind of... What could have been for all of the teams that did not win? I'll get to that a little bit with the Bengals, obviously, but I want to expand that out as we get into the offseason and we start to talk about how teams need to change, what they need to do differently in order to win, what teams are cut out for winning and what teams are not. And we start to draw lines between this subset of teams and this subset of teams. Once the season ends is where I like to make a quick note and say there are a decent amount of teams that I think could have won the Super Bowl this year with no changes. Uh, just these razor-thin margins maybe went against them. Granted, all of these teams could improve in various ways. The Rams could improve. The Super Bowl champions, that's how it works. However, if you're being honest with yourself in your evaluation, and a lot of teams are sitting at home going, man, what could have been? The Bengals, obviously the most recent, but you step back two weeks prior And I'm sure the Chiefs were watching that Super Bowl going, how did we blow a 21-3 lead to the Bengals? How did our offense just completely forget how to play any semblance of football the entire second half and overtime of the AFC title game when we had chance after chance? How did we not punch in a touchdown in the last minute and change of regulation that presumably would have given us the win? That's what the Chiefs are sitting at home thinking of amongst How can we improve, but at the same time, man, we kind of let another season slip through our fingers that we could have won the Super Bowl in. Same day, the San Francisco Niners, I'm sure, sitting at home watching the Rams beat the Bengals and saying, man, if Jaquiski Tart just could have picked off that Matt Stafford arm punt with about nine, eight minutes left in the fourth quarter with the Niners up three, and secured great field position and presumably at least gotten a Robbie Gould field goal out of that to go up six. 
But best case scenario, punching a touchdown. Now you're up 10 with not a lot of time left. And you're playing in the Super Bowl against the Bengals. And you're saying, eh, we could definitely beat this team. I mean, we did with about a month to go in the regular season. San Francisco went in and beat Cincinnati in Cincinnati. It's another what could have been moment for a team that obviously had its warts, like a lot of teams do, most notably at the quarterback position probably with Garoppolo. But the razor-thin margins go against them. You rewind a week prior to that, and you got a whole handful of teams that are still sitting there the same thing. Green Bay Packers, if we just knew how to block when we were trying to punt, we could have been playing the Rams in the NFC title game, hosting them at Lambeau and freezing temperatures, and we could have beat them. And then we could have been playing the Bengals on Super Bowl Sunday. We could have beat them because we think we're better. Actually, we beat that team earlier in the season in Cincinnati as well. Buffalo Bills, if they're thinking about razor-thin margins, they're probably saying to themselves, if we just had a coin toss go our way, as we were entering overtime to play the Kansas City Chiefs, already an incredible amount of things had happened up to that point, including the Chiefs getting into field goal range to tie it with virtually no time on the clock starting at their own 25-yard line. Two plays, one to Tyree Kill, one to Travis Kelsey to gain a bunch of yards. Harrison Butker drills a field goal to send it overtime. And even with all of that, the Bills are sitting at home going, if we just could have won a coin toss, is there any doubt that our offense would have went down and scored? Instead, they lose it. They can't stop Mahomes. They're at home. Razor thin margins. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they lose to the Rams in the divisional round. They come roaring back from a big deficit. They tie it up with less than a minute to go, and they're sitting there saying, if we just could have prevented two big pass plays from Stafford to Cooper Cup that resulted in the Matt Gay game-winning field goal, we just could have played somewhat normal defense. And the game's in overtime, and we have all the momentum. Things could have been very different. For us, we could be celebrating a back-to-back Super Bowl championship. Tennessee Titans sitting at home, razor-thin margins. If our quarterback just doesn't throw three picks, including one on our last play from scrimmage offensively, that set up an Evan McPherson game-winning field goal at the buzzer of that game. Even teams beyond that, whether it's the Cowboys in the round prior, who I think were a really good football team, albeit inconsistent, But they got a funky game going on against the Niners. A bunch of weird stuff going on. Referee calls or no calls. Strange, strange coaching decisions from Mike McCarthy, which you got to know is going to come back and bite you sooner rather than later. They're sitting home going, I mean, it could have been our year. Again, it's a weird, funky year. Even teams that didn't make the playoffs. Maybe teams that were completely beset by injuries, like the Baltimore Ravens. Good example. Just hamstrung the entire season. Their entire running back room goes down. Lamar Jackson, he's out. Just seems like every week there's five more players getting added to the injury injured reserve. And that's a team that I think for a large portion of the season, a lot of people thought, oh, you know, put them in the playoffs and that team's freaky as hell. You can list a bunch of teams every season in the NFL. Again, a reason why I think this sport is so enthralling and magnetic to viewers because turnarounds can happen quickly. Uh, Look at the Bengals, who were an atrocious team even last year, much less two years ago when they were the worst team in football and got Joe Burrow with the number one pick. But even in any individual season, the difference between 
perception of a team and reality can be as simple as you suffered a bunch of injuries. The Ravens next year could be dominating. They could win 14 games. They could win the Super Bowl. The Browns could do the same thing with a stacked roster and maybe Baker Mayfield's now healthy and they can go on a run like the Niners did this year with Garoppolo and a stacked roster. The line is always tiny, much less for the teams that made the playoffs that made it further and got there and the Packers and the Bucks and the Bills or the Chiefs or the Niners or any of these teams, they're going, eh. In a, a universe that is not that different from this one, we're the Super Bowl champion this year. But we live in this universe. And the Rams are the ones who weathered adversity, who had things go their way, who had a vision. They executed on it. They got breaks. They made plays. All the things that you need to do in order to win a Super Bowl. And in the grand scheme of the Super Bowl itself, the Rams versus the Bengals, I, I don't care who won. You know, I bet the Rams minus four. I lost that by a point in a, just a sad, sad turn of events. But as far as emotional connection, it didn't matter to me who won that game. And so I want to discuss kind of the minutia of this particular game a little bit more scientifically rather than the passion that I'll bring a lot of times to games that involve teams that I really care about or players that I really care about. Um, not necessarily about who should have won this game and I'm mad about this and this, but just an examination of how this particular game was won and how that relates to playoff football and then a full circle tie a bow on the season and my very favorite discussion about what this means for narratives. So the story of the game, in my opinion, was the Rams' defensive line. Echoes of last year's Super Bowl. Tampa Bay Buccaneers swallow Kansas City. The story of that game was line play. Most notably, Tampa Bay's defensive front. Talked about that a lot because it was shocking how dominant the Buccaneers' defensive line was in that game. And we got a similar style in this game. Most notably in the second half. Because the Rams' offense, especially after Odell Beckham was injured, just kind of forgot how to perform at all. And the second half was a lot of, we need to make stops continually, continually on defense. And the Rams' defensive line was the story. There's pressure, 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 sacks, sacks, sacks. All of the biggest plays came from that unit, including the final two plays of the Bengals' season on offense. So that's the story of the game. But what I want to concentrate on as it pertains to the margins in the way that the margins leak out and turn into overarching narratives, I want to talk about two things that I find really interesting about this game and how they relate to playoff football. And there are two things that I talk about a good amount on this show. Referees and quarterbacks. Two of my favorite subjects. And I'm going to start with referees. Because as much as I wish it were untrue, referees matter, and they matter greatly. And when you distill it down to a small sample size, as the NFL playoffs are, the referees matter immensely. Because one call or no call can have an incredible effect upon the outcome of the game. We've seen that for all of time. I could record show upon show just about that particular subject whether it's the way the Patriots dynasty was launched with the tuck rule 
a bizarre rule that still to this day nobody understands. If you watch the play when Charles Woodson comes in and sacks Brady and rips the ball out and the Raiders recover and it would end the game, it's still to any person who watches football looks like a fumble. There's no understanding about what this rule is or why it was put into the rule book. And the refs have a huge congregation in this rule that nobody knows about at the time because why would we? Now we know the name. We know what it is. It's the tuck rule. It's this strange interpretation of the law that for whatever reason gave the Patriots life, which they took advantage of and spun out 20 years of Super Bowl appearance and win after Super Bowl appearance and win. So referees matter. In that game, it could have been as simple as that's a fumble and we're calling it a fumble. We did on the field and the Raiders are moving on to the next round and the Patriots are going home. And who knows how different history is if that's the case. I mean, ESPN just released a 30 for 30 about this particular play, the tuck rule. It's Charles Woodson and Tom Brady sitting and talking about this play. I can't watch it because I'm still bitter about all of the stuff that's occurred. But you get the point, the importance that one particular play that boils down to a referee call or interpretation or the combination of those two in this case, it suddenly spawns a dynasty. And there's examples of this, again, throughout year after year after year. Uh, the, the one that I was thinking about recently was the Des Bryant catch or no catch against Green Bay in the 2014 playoffs. An, an incredible football game in its own right. Divisional round, Green Bay hosting Dallas. Two teams that could have won the Super Bowl that year. And it comes down to fourth down, Tony Romo, great throw down the sideline to Des Bryant. Looks like a catch. Ask anybody who watches football, is that a catch? And I think everybody would say, Yeah. And instead, it's that asinine time when the NFL, well, they're still kind of in that phase, but even more so in 2014, 2015. They have no idea what a catch is or how to interpret it. And so they look at it and say, well, you got to secure it eight steps after the fact and take it to the ground and go hand it to a child in the crowd. And only then will we rule it a catch. That's the biggest play of the game. Packers get the ball back, get two first downs, game over. Even this year, one of the participants in the Super Bowl, the Bengals, one of their defining plays in their run, in my mind, was the Tyler Boyd touchdown against the Raiders. When it's third down and Joe Burrow's running out of bounds, it looks like, and then he whips it back into play, and the referee blows the play dead while the ball is in air, about halfway between Burrow and the receiver. And the Raiders kind of stop a little bit, and Tyler Boyd kind of stops, even though he catches it, but he doesn't celebrate because he heard the whistle. And the play should be dead. And the refs get together and go, ah, we'll just let that count. Huge play. One possession game that ends up being decided by one possession. There's just so many of these over the course of time. I mean, hell, the last time the Rams made the Super Bowl prior to this season, it's the biggest no-call in recent memory, maybe even in my lifetime, because it sent a team to a Super Bowl and sent a team home. The Nickel Roby Coleman, no pass interference call on a third down play. The Saints are lining up for what I presume would be a game-winning touchdown at the end of regulation. Because if they call the pass interference, that is just a complete mugging. It's first and goal right at the goal line, and all they have to do is punch it in, and it's pretty much game over. And instead, nope, uh, the, we just swallow our whistles here <laughs> because, I don't know, we don't want to make a call. And instead, the Saints have to kick a field goal there, go to overtime, 
Drew Brees interception. Greg Zerline boots an enormous like 60-yard field goal, I believe, and Rams are going to the Super Bowl. So we have examples of this for all of time, all of time, all of time. And, and people know this. I mean, I'm reading a Bill Barnwell article this morning, and he writes this within, within his article. We know the NFL has a long track record of trying to avoid flags in big games. Teams use that information to their advantage. As former Patriots executive Scott Pioli noted, the Patriots deliberately played more physically in the conference title games and the Super Bowls, knowing referees were unlikely to call penalties, end quote. And that matches up because I think referees are well aware that they have an outsized role in the outcome of these games and they don't want to be involved. However, you can be just as involved by not calling something as by calling something. As we saw on the Nikel Roby Coleman play, as we saw in this year's Super Bowl. So, again, I don't want this to come across as I think this call should have been differently and this team should have won and this team was robbed. What I want to do is examine two calls as kind of sliding door style moments. Two enormous biffs by the referees in my mind. One favored the Rams, one favored the Bengals. If you want to just look at that and say, call it a wash, we're fine, great, fine, whatever. I want to do this more as an examination of the sliding door style way that I watch football and saying, this altered the context of the game, the DNA, if you will, in ways that we'll never know. And if one of these is different, or if both of these are different, who the hell knows what is going on today and who the hell knows how we're talking about narratives and quarterbacks and team building strategies and all the stuff that I like to discuss. So I'm sure all of you know the two plays that I'm going to discuss because we all watch the Super Bowl. The first one is T. Higgins face masking Jalen Ramsey on a 75-yard touchdown the first play of the second half that gives the Bengals the lead. Goes uncalled. Live, I didn't catch it. I kind of thought that Ramsey stumbled and was out of position. And I went, oh my gosh, he's having a rough game, which he still kind of did even without this play. But then it goes to replay and the 75 yard touchdown that gives the Bengals the lead. I'm now watching it and Jalen Ramsey is in pretty good position. And then he's not because T. Higgins grabs his face Mac and pulls him out of the way and it throws him off balance and he falls down and T. Higgins catches it, runs off 75 yard touchdown. Huge, huge, huge sliding door style moment at the time. And then that ties into the second play that I want to discuss, which was third and goal from the eight yard line with under two minutes to go in regulation. The Rams are trailing by four. They're struggling to move the ball. This is the first drive they've had in the entire second half that they've put together any semblance of an offensive strategy. And Logan Wilson, the Cincinnati Bengals linebacker, plays great defense on Cooper Cup. He gets kind of isolated against him. And live again, I kind of, uh, I'm missing what's going on and I see that he's matched up on Cooper Cup and so the flag comes out and I assume, yeah, well, he probably got beat and he had to hold him because that's just not really a fair matchup. Then it shows the replay and it's just really good coverage, in my opinion, from a linebacker. In any game, much less this game, where the referees had kind of established what Barnwell was referring to in his paragraph. 
hey, we're not going to call a lot of the stuff that we would call in a regular season game or a different playoff game. And you guys know this. So receivers, cornerbacks, uh, defensive line, offensive line, maybe these ticky-tack holdings and illegal contacts and pass interference that we call, we're not going to call that in this game. And they didn't. And I like that. However, it makes it a little bit more glaring when at the most critical juncture of the game, you see a flag come out and then you watch the replay and you go, that's 100% not a penalty in the context of this game. In the context of another game, uh, maybe it's a penalty 10% of the time. It just doesn't look like there's a lot there. So two huge plays, two whiffs by the ref and the refereeing crew. And after the game, I'm looking at a pool report from the refing crew and they're asking, you know, what, what happened on this T. Higgins play? They go, well, you know, nothing happened. You know, we didn't see anything and it was a fine play, which just, all right, all right. The point being, refs can be as incompetent or just not equipped for their jobs in the same way that all of us can be. Football players, when they do it, we notice it. When a quarterback has a complete meltdown, we just make fun of them and say, this guy's so bad. Oh my gosh, he's not cut out for it. When I just biff all over a podcast, you all hear it and say, this guy can't talk. This guy can't formulate a coherent sentence. He's not good at what he's doing. All of us go through our struggles. All of us make mistakes. It's no different from anything. And that's true for referees. Where it's interesting is that referees, this neutral observer style party, we're not supposed to have any effect on the game. They always have an enormous effect on the game, which in turn has an enormous effect on narratives moving forward about players and teams. Legacy stuff, right? And so these two plays, again, if you want to just take a straight view at it and say one favored one side, one favored the other, they're a wash, whatever. That's fine. That's great. But the complexion of this game is definitely different if both of these are called correctly. We're back to square one. The Bengals now have the ball and they're down 13 to 10 and it's first and 20, second play from scrimmage of the second half. We don't even have the Rams play to talk about at that point. Or where it becomes more interesting in the terms of legacy narrative. If just one of these is called correctly. So now we have two plays favoring the Bengals or two plays favoring the Rams. Which at the time, everybody will freak out about and we'll talk about it on shows like this the day after, the week after. But as time goes on, all most people will remember is the Rams won the Super Bowl and for player legacy stuff, Matt Stafford is a Super Bowl champion at quarterback. Sean McVay, he's a Super Bowl winning coach. And Joe Burrow lost a Super Bowl and Zach Taylor lost a Super Bowl. And that's the stuff that we'll remember. We won't remember these tiny little plays, the razor-thin margins that make up these games. And this is where I take a pause and talk about this Super Bowl, but just playoff football in general and the absurdity of how closely player and team legacy is tied into refing. It's just hard for my brain to compute it, no matter how many times I see it, because of the way that it's covered on the television and because of the way that fans discuss football and legacy based solely upon who won and who lost. So that leads into the second part of what I find to be really interesting in general about football 
and what I want to concentrate on in the Super Bowl. Quarterback narratives. I love talking about them. And I love talking about what quarterback narratives are reliant upon outside of the performance of the quarterback themselves. All of you who listen to the show know it is the number one thing that I talk about in the sport of football. So in the Super Bowl, we have the second straight year that we watch the losing quarterback run for his life. Last year, it's Mahomes. This year, it's Burrow, especially in the second half. Virtually the entire second half, actually. And there's a few things that I want to read as it pertains to Burrow in the playoffs, Burrow in the Super Bowl, and what the Bengals have constructed around him and what is a realistic expectation for a quarterback in that particular situation. So the first thing I want to read comes from Shiokapadia of The Athletic. Joe Burrow was sacked 19 times in the playoffs. That's the most for any quarterback in a single postseason in at least the last 20 years, and it's not close. No other quarterback was higher than 12. Here's the second thing I want to read. It comes from Bill Barnwell of ESPN. When Burrow didn't get the ball out quickly, the Bengals were toast. ESPN's pass block win rate statistic tracks how often an offensive lineman wins his block versus a defensive lineman across the first 2.5 seconds of a pass play. The Bengals had a pass block win rate of 18%, which was the worst single game performance by any team in any game during the 2021 season. Likewise, as you can probably guess, the Rams winning on 82% of their pass rush attempts made theirs the most successful pass rush in any game this season. And the third thing I want to read, which is back to Shio In the regular season, the Bengals ranked 30th in ESPN's pass block win rate metric. The Bengals' path forward should be obvious. The best way to sustain success year after year is to build an efficient offense. With Burrow and his pass-catching options, the Bengals are well-positioned to do that. But the offensive line needs to be at the center of everything they do this offseason. They need to prioritize keeping Burrow upright so that he takes fewer hits and can have a long, successful career. The goal has to be to make life easier for Burrow, rather than ask him to be Superman. End quote. So I talked about this on last week's show. I'm sure everybody was aware of this who has watched football this season. I'm not breaking any news, but the main area that I wanted to watch coming in, the main area that seemed like it was such an outrageous mismatch, I didn't understand how Cincinnati could overcome it, was their offensive line against the Rams' defensive line. And that proved to be the case, although still this game was as tight as could possibly be. And we had all sorts of sliding door styles moments, but at the heart of it was the fact that the Cincinnati Bengals' offensive line in the second half was in no way equipped to stop what Leonard Floyd and Aaron Donald and Von Miller and all of those pass rushers were trying to do. Just beat the hell out of Joe Burrow. Hit him again and again. Get the ball out fast in a way that he doesn't want to. At one point, injure him as his knee and ankle are twisting sideways and they're showing close-ups of him screaming on the ground. And I'm going, is he even coming back in? You had a real, real, real sense that this is a mismatch. This is not, I know the Bengals have gotten this far. It's an incredible story. Cool, great. Kudos to them. Burrow's awesome. Um, Jamar Chase is awesome. They've done a lot of good things on defense, all this kind of stuff. But at the heart of it, if they're being honest with themselves, 
They need to take a look at the quarterback position and how other positions relate to it. And kind of echo what Kapati is saying at the end. It's not realistic to ask this guy to be Superman behind a line that is this bad. They were 30th in pass block win rate this season. Two seasons ago, Joe Burrow had his knee blown out because the offensive line was just as bad. He very well could have in that Super Bowl when his knee is twisting sideways. And no matter who you put back there at quarterback, whether it's Mahomes last year against the Bucs, whether it's Burrow this year against the Rams, two ferocious defensive fronts, it's not realistic or fair to ask that quarterback to win us this game. You're supposed to be the best player on the field, so just be it. Well, you can't do that if you have no time to throw. Now, even with all this, there's so many sliding door style moments that could have resulted in a Bengals win. And I could be sitting here going, I don't know how the Bengals won with their offensive line blocking like that, but they did. They have a boxed, botched extra point going in their favor, which ends up not mattering because the Rams win, but it it makes the Rams have to go for a touchdown on that final drive. Rather than just being able to kick a field goal, it obviously affects the gambling line immensely, which was Rams minus four. The game ends Rams by three. The Odell Beckham injury turns the game completely on its head because before that, the Rams are moving the ball at will. Their pass game looks awesome. And then he's out, and it looks like they've never played offense. Burrow, even with all this constant pressure, there's a huge sliding doors moment with six minutes to go. He hits Tyler Boyd right on the money on third down. Who drops it, they say on the broadcast, first drop all year. And it looks like he's going to catch it and have a first down near midfield. Who knows how the game plays out differently if that occurs. And then we have the final two plays from the Bengals. Third and one, they bring in Samaje Pirine to run the ball. Who knows why? I believe I saw a stat that he had 56 carries total on the season. He had four carries in short yardage situations this season on third or fourth down. Mixon ran the ball well all game. I think he had 70 some odd yards, almost five yards per carry. Aaron Donald makes a great play, but at the same time, you're going, this is at the time, the most important play of the season. Do you not want your best players on the field? Is Samaji Pirine really who you want to be giving the ball to right now? And then it's fourth and one. And Burrow's back in a shotgun. And if you want to do the big, ah, oh, quarterback can, uh, the best quarterback's going to will the team to victory. And I love Burrow and Burrow's awesome. And I think Burrow's going to have a great career. I will never sit here dissing on Joe Burrow. I only want to talk about this in terms of how quarterback narratives arise. Doesn't matter if Mahomes is back there, Rodgers, Brady, who cares? It doesn't matter. Joe Burrow's the one who's back there. But it's fourth and one. And we don't trust our offense to run for a yard. That's alarming, but that's a whole other subject. So we're going to get in the shotgun. We're just going to throw something. We can get a first down. We got a great passing offense. We got great weapons. But if you can't block, then it doesn't matter. And even on a fourth and one, when you're trying to get the ball out quick, they snap it to him. Quick little double clutch. Aaron Donald's in. He's grabbing him as fast as can be. And the game's over. That's it. That's how this kind of stuff can be decided. Even at the quarterback position where, yes, they're going to have the biggest effect on anything on the field, but it's still a small percentage of how a game is won and lost. So that flips to the other side as we talk about quarterback narratives and what we take away from games moving forward. And just, wow, if a quarterback wins a Super Bowl or loses a Super Bowl, we talk about that in asinine terms compared to what we used to talk about, about the exact same quarterback who maybe didn't even do anything differently from what they normally do. Now, I'm happy for Matt Stafford because he's a Super Bowl champion, and now he's going to get his correct due as a really good quarterback. 
which he's been his whole career. And it's taken until this year for him to be put on a team that is actually good for a lot of people to realize that. And it has taken the Rams winning an actual Super Bowl for everybody to finally say, oh, okay, maybe this guy actually is pretty good at football. Now, the Super Bowl was a perfect representation of how Matt Stafford plays. He's got awesome talent. He will make mistakes. That is how he has been his entire career, dating back to Georgia in college, then to the Lions, now to the Rams. He has two interceptions, one a complete underthrow on a third and long into the corner of the end zone. I'm watching replays this morning. He has stuff underneath that he could have taken. He didn't. Throws a pick. Okay, whatever. He throws another interception. The first play after that T. Higgins uncalled face mask, 75-yard touchdown. Passes a little bit out. Not great. I'm not sure if the penalty should have been an interception, but that's what ends up happening. Again, razor-thin margins, remember. And then he makes a lot of great throws. couple awesome ones to Beckham when he was still playing, including that touchdown throw. He has a gorgeous throw right down the seam to Cooper Cup on that final drive. Kind of a no-looker. He's looking right and then just rips a pass through two defenders into a tiny window. Arm talent stuff that we've seen from Matt Stafford. Now, all of this stuff that I've been talking about, it ties into Matt Stafford made some plays that were awesome, made some plays that were bad. Ultimately, why he is a Super Bowl champion is in small part because of that. But if I'm breaking it down into a pie chart and assigning percentages, the biggest percentage is going to Rams defensive line. And so this, this will be the final time of this particular NFL season, although I'm sure I will podcast about it many more times before we even get to the following season about how absurd quarterback narratives are and what they are driven by. And ultimately, Matt Stafford, who is a really good quarterback, as I've said from 2009 season on, actually before when he's back at Georgia, but 2009 season on in the NFL. Um, his career essentially boils down to a simple question for me, which I said last week. Do you have a team in place that can mitigate his mistakes? He's going to give you 75% awesomeness, 25%, oh, that's not good. Do you have a team in place that can mitigate those mistakes? And if you do, as the Rams did, you're going to be a Super Bowl champion. So that'll lead me into my final quote that comes from Shio Kapadia uh, that I think really nicely summarizes what I've been talking about this entire season and really nicely summarizes my thoughts on quarterbacking in general. So I'm going to read that, then we're going to be done with the NFL season. I'm going to start talking about different things, maybe. <laughs> so here it is from Shokapadia. The big lesson with Stafford and the Rams is that circumstances matter. Surround Stafford with a coach like McVay, a wide receiver like Cup, a good offensive line, and a terrific defense, and he can win a Super Bowl. Surround him with what he had in Detroit, and well, he probably won't. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Please remember to subscribe and download and rate this show on whatever podcast platform you use. Five stars. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. NFL is done. Let's move on. Peace. <laughs>